Hello. Good morning, or afternoon, I guess now it is. How's it going? Oh, it's close enough to morning for me. You're listening to Just One of the Guys. What will resume normal Guy Gardner coverage next week. Very special episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is this, this is an internet radio show dedicated to bringing coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, with a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, two of my favorite Green Lanterns of all time. Unfortunately, Guy Gardner is nowhere to be seen this time around, as we're going to be doing, as I said at the beginning, a very special episode. This time, we're going to be covering a one-shot comic starring Green Lantern and Marvel character the Silver Surfer. What, you say? These are two characters from two opposing companies from different universes and everything. Well, guess what, guys? Back in the 90s, DC and Marvel really didn't hate each other as much as they do now, and they were actually sort of open to company-wide crossovers. In fact, this is one of the uh, early beginnings. That makes no sense. It's one of the earlier uh, comics that... uh, sort of reinvigorated the uh, crossover event between DC and Marvel, which eventually led to the Amalgam Universe and some interesting comics there. But uh, I have been very fortunate to be joined, or I am very fortunate to be joined this time out in the coverage of this comic with one of my favorite podcasters out there on the internet. Uh, He is the host of The Thrilling Adventures of Superman, which you can catch at greatcrypton.com. And he's also one of the co-hosts, along with J. David Weeder and Jeffrey Taylor, of Green Lantern's Light, which you can catch at GreenLanternsLight.com. It's been a while since he's been on the internet, but I'm glad to welcome back Mr. Michael Bradley. Hey, Michael, how's it going? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing good. I really appreciate you getting with me and talking about this, because this was something that was probably a little bit off my radar, and I wouldn't have covered it, but recently I noticed in... uh, one of the ads in uh, the recent comics I was covering that this was uh, promoted in there. So, oh, they I'm had ads to... for this? Yeah, they actually had an ad for this in uh, hmm. one of the Green Lantern comics. I was like, hey, this would be kind of neat to cover. And since you mentioned it to me, I was more than happy to cover it with you. So this Thank is going to for... be fun. <laughs> Thank you for letting me invite myself. That was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to have you on, especially I know you've had some some issues with work and everything and it's been limiting your podcast time so i'm just i'm just thrilled as all get out the fact that you're able to come on and do this podcast with me 
means a lot to me. Well, I'm glad to be here. Okay. Well, as usual, I will go ahead because of my new contract with the Demonza Corps. I'm required to uh, plug a few promos for podcasts that the Demonza Corps podcast network you know, promotes. Speaking words, not good. But other than that, uh, let's go ahead and hit some promos. And as soon as we get back from that, we'll start in our coverage of Green Lantern, Silver Surfer, Unholy Alliances. sense of disturbance in the force. I don't like this. Monthly Mondays, available the first Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Lancers, I've called you here to this unprecedented gathering because we face an unprecedented danger. An enemy we don't yet fully understand. Mystic Guardians of the Universe. Recruited from across the galaxy for their bravery and courage. The best and brightest join to fulfill a solemn oath. In brightest day. In blackest night. No evil shall escape my sight. Let those who worship evil's might beware my power. 
Green Lantern's Light. Green Lantern's Light, a monthly podcast covering the adventures of Hal Jordan, John Stewart, Guy Gardner, and the entire Green Lantern Corps from 1984 through today. Say the oath. Join the Corps. Green Lantern's Light. Available monthly at GreenLanternsLight.com. And we are back. So let's go ahead and get into our coverage of Green Lantern Silver Surfer on Holy Alliances. It was cover dated the year of 1996, and it looks to be released on about November 28th of 1995. This is according, of course, to the ever popular and ever excellent Mike's World of Mike's Amazing World of Comics. The cover price was four ninety five US and six ninety five Canada. The writer four ninety five. Yes. Today this book would cost like ten dollars. Yes, that is that is true. You know, four ninety five is pretty much is almost standard for a regular comic book now. I mean, well, no, three ninety five or three ninety nine, but yeah. Wow, yeah. It was nice when you could get prestige format books for under five bucks. Yeah. Mm. How much was that? The big Green Lantern finale that Jeff Johns did. Uh, actually, I think that was eight bucks. It was seven ninety nine. But yeah, that was like a. I think that was like seventy two page. I need to go to my LCS. I haven't picked up mm. my pull list yet, so uh, I'm looking to get that. And uh, it'll be. That, that's an intro. I the one thing I've heard about it, North's in the issue. So North right. survived the new fifty two. So that thank makes me goodness happy. something good is happening. <laughs> yes, there's something, there's something bright and shining in the new dc50u rather than misery and darkness and blackness although although it does cheat us out of that nort rebirth series we were yes that, that, well at least we got vibe rebirth so that's mm. that's good enough yeah well no <laughs> <clears throat> anyway the writer was ron mars penciler was daryl banks inker was terry austin letterer was chris iliopoulos uh, colorist was the International House of Colors, or digital chameleon cover colors was gloria vasquez and the editor was kevin dooley our story begins in the cold blackness of space. Our hero approaches the remains of a once thriving planet now torn asunder by a mysterious foe. Thinking back to his past, the hero knows of one who could have caused such destruction. But this person, clad with red billowing cape, is not him. In fact, this person is not even from this universe, as our hero, the Silver Surfer, fires a warning blast of his power cosmic at the being. But the entity, which we now see is Hank Henshaw, the cyborg Superman is unfazed from the attack and returns fire, claiming that he will recreate the war world, and there is nothing that the surfer can do to stop him. And with that, our first bout of Fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved, for the issue begins. Meanwhile, light years away, Cal Rayner is working on a new logo for his landlord's coffee shop when an explosion outside his window causes him to go into action as his secret identity, Green Lantern. Placing his ring to the battery, Kyle charges up and flies out where the disturbance occurs. Reaching the site, he finds an axe-wielding alien named Terax, who says he knows about Green Lantern and that he's the one obstacle standing in his way of conquering the universe. And with that, our second bout of McFightenstein for the issue begins. Cut back to the Silver Surfer and Cyborg, engaged in a cosmic struggle amidst the remains of the destroyed planet. The surfer surmises that the villain must not be from this reality, as he was surprised by the mention of Galactus, the world devourer. Rather than question where he came from, the surfer blasts the cyborg with the power cosmic, 
which does little to harm the mechanical menace. But the surfer is unexpectedly aided by a warrior clad in green, a man once known as Hal Jordan, now known as Parallax. Over with Kyle and Terax, our Emerald Hero is discovering not only does the man swing a mighty axe, but he can also manipulate the earth, much to GL's chagrin as he gets knocked in the head with a rock propelled by the fiddle. Towering over his foe, Terax prepares to deliver the final blow to the young lantern when he's knocked over by a beam of red energy. Hoping that his savior is Superman, Kyle looks up to see the Titan Thanos sitting in his hoverboard lounger. Back in plot number one, Parallax lays into the cyborg, saying that it'll make the rampaging robot pay for what he did to Coast City. But before Hal can blow up the cyborg real good, Silver Surfer intervenes, demanding at least a page worth of backstory. Hal obliges, since the delay of the flight allowed Cyborg to sneak off to parts unknown. Then Parallax relates the tale of the destruction of Coast City and his desire to bring Cyborg to justice. Surfer asks if Parallax is a hero, and he replies that he once was, but now he's taken on the mission of correcting the mistakes that were made and making things right. Unexpectedly, the Surfer understands Parallax's plight and feels a certain kinship with Moving back to plot number two, we see a royally peeved Terax leap at Thanos as he claims that he can't believe that he trusted him. Thanos concurs as he catches his axe mid-swing all Bruce Lee style and gives Terax a zap of energy, knocking him out. Crisis averted, Thanos transports Terax back to whence he came and introduces himself formally to the Green Lantern. Things switch back and forth as the surfer tells the tale of him giving up his humanity to save his home planet from destruction by Galactus, and Thanos tells Green Lantern about the cross-dimensional threat of Hal Jordan. Parallax tries to convince the Surfer that he could use his power to restructure the universe and bring back all the lives that were lost to the world devourer, just as Thanos tries to convince Green Lantern to use his ring in conjunction with a weapon of his own design in order to defeat Jordan. Separated by vast cosmic differences, Thanos and Parallax ask Green Lantern and Silver Surfer to help them to which they both reluctantly reply, yes. To show what truly can be done, Parallax channels his power through the Surfer, causing the world that was destroyed by the Cyborg to become whole again, just as nothing had happened. The former Herald of Galactus marvels at the feat, as a purposefully renewed Hal Jordan says that this is only the beginning. Meanwhile, Kyle and Thanos are teleported to the remains of Boa, where latent energy left after Kyle blew it up real good has created a rift between the two universes. Thanos tells Kyle that he needs to use his ring to channel the energy to his weapon in order to defeat Parallax, and Kyle reluctantly straps himself into the device, worried that this might have not have been a good idea. Back with Silver Surfer, Hal senses a disturbance in the Force, as if billions of voices cried out and were suddenly silenced. Wait, no, I'm sorry, he just senses a disturbance. That was a bit grandiose. Believing that this could impede the work that he and the Surfer are doing, Hal, takes, Hal has Norrin take him to the source of the disturbance, so the duo can stop whoever is causing it. At said source, Thanos reveals to Kyle that the whole energy of Oa thing was all a ruse. Actually, Thanos wanted to use the energy in order to obliterate all life in the universe so that he could finally be at the side of his whoopee, Lady Death. Kyle is shocked, shocked I tell you, to have been duped so easily as by someone as Thanos as Thanos prepares to end life in the life of his unwitting pawn. But before Kyle becomes the first of Thanos' untold numbers of dead, 
Parallax and Silver Surfer arrive and engage in the epic level of Fighting McFightenstein, copyright Andrew Leyland, 2011, all rights reserved. The Surfer goes after Green Lantern as Parallax and Thanos have the talkie-talkie before the punchy-punchy. Then it's on like Donkey Kong, and the two titans channel their immense power against each other. In Fight A, Kyle is doing his best to convince the Surfer that his intentions were good and he was misled, while in Fight B, Thanos and Parallax take turns building and destroying worlds. Finally, Green Lantern capsizes Silver Surfer with a ring construct wave, and the two look upon the destruction that Hal and Thanos are causing. The Surfer says that their only hope is for Kyle to use the ring to strip them of their power. Reluctantly, Kyle agrees and channels all the power from the two titans into himself, then redirects it into the Silver Surfer, whose body is a living battery. The Surfer is able to withstand the massive influx of energy, and with that, the battle is ended. The two heroes begin to congratulate each other when a rift in the cosmos opens, drawing the Surfer and Thanos back to their universe. Wondering if they'll ever meet again, Kal heads back home with the knowledge that whatever catastrophe arises, he'll be ready to take it on. Okay, that was a pretty, uh, uh, as usual, most of my synopsises are kind of short, but this one was pretty long because I just went through the entire book. And this was a nice, longer, prestige format book, but this was a really fun read. Uh, yeah. you, you did a good job with the synopsis, too, because it it, it jumps back and forth between the two storylines quite a bit before they actually converge You know, in the, the final act of the book. And you did a really good job of well, it, it's, dealing it, with all that. It is kind of hard because you're you're having one story go along with, with uh, basically Hal the Cyborg and Silver Surfer, and then you've got the separate story with Terax, Thanos, and Kyle as Green Lantern. So it's I kind of had to make an A plot and a B plot thing, but it works, and it's it's a sort of typical. It's got a lot of typical tropes of these sort of stories where the heroes meet up and then have to fight each other, then realize that afterwards that the actual villain is the person that sort of manipulated them. Mm -hmm. But uh, overall, it's a really good story, and it's a nice way to sort of reintroduce the uh, DC characters to the Marvel Universe and vice versa. And plus having Ron Mars, who was a writer on Silver Surfer for a pretty good amount of time, bring the Silver Surfer into the DC Universe, it just just makes sense within the story. Was he... I'm not too versed with Marvel stuff. Was he writing Silver Surfer at this time, or no? Actually, he had been writing Silver Surfer prior to this. Okay. And uh, when they did the whole Emerald Twilight thing, they brought Mars over to uh, write Green Lantern, and he's been writing Green Lantern oh. since. So okay. So basically, so it 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 had only been maybe a couple of years then since he yeah. Wrote okay. Yeah. So I think he I can't remember when he dropped. I, I'm assuming he probably dropped it prior to coming over to Green Lantern. But he had a pretty good run, if I remember, over in Silver Surfer. So he knows both of the characters by now really well. And his take on them is really great. I, I like the way that the Surfer's portrayed, and I like the way Kyle's portrayed. But, yeah. um, I really like that the story is so tied to each character's um, history or, or continuity, but, but not really in a way that, that new readers are going to feel hopelessly lost. I mean, they do... They do kind of go out of their way at times explaining each character, but that's to be expected in a crossover, especially with somebody like Kyle Rayner, who was still relatively new at this time, and Silver Surfer, who's not exactly an A-list character. But, you know, they they 
they use the characters' backstories to kind of build the plot of this story, which I really think worked in the book's favor. Mm-hmm. And the way that they use the backstories, it wasn't – it was mostly done in sort of the uh, the caption boxes where it was uh, the sort of uh, narration of the characters' thoughts. Right. So it wasn't exactly you know the characters coming out and saying, I am Green Lantern. I came from here and I do this and all this and I have the – you know, it was, it was allowed to flow naturally within the story. So For the most part, yeah. It wasn't – yeah, it wasn't heavy-handed. It wasn't – you know, I I point to Chris Claremont a lot, who likes to do very expository stories that have to uh, repeat the ideas and the concepts of the characters in every book. Yeah, I mean it 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 works well, I think, within the story. But uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, do you want to go ahead and we'll just cover this uh, page by page? Yeah. Okay. I actually had one other comment before we start with the page by page. Okay. Um, the continuity of when this story takes place is kind of weird. Like I said, I don't know too much about things from the Marvel side, but you know, as far as uh, Kyle's concerned, they make references to him being in the Titans and and stuff that went on with um, Parallax View. But Kyle still seems pretty sorry for the pun, but he still seems pretty green, like he just got the ring. Yeah, he does. It, it, this does this. I'm assuming this has to happen right around where. We just finished off with issue 70. Uh, issue 70 was kind of the breakup issue between Donna and Kyle. And this probably is leading into the Heroes Quest story where Kyle goes out and meets with some of the major heroes in the DC universe and gets, uh, you know, kind of uh, gets information from them and gets sort of uh, ideas of how to be a hero from them. Hmm. So I'm thinking, yeah, it does kind of fall back on the idea that Kyle is unsure of himself, which doesn't really work in the story because by the time you would think this would be going on, he would have already tackled Hal a second time in the whole Parallax View storyline where the uh, Justice League of like Aquaman and Hawkman and Superman came to fight Greenland or Parallax. But I don't think it takes away from the story all that much i think it i think they sort of fall back every once in a while on the fact that kyle is still kind of insecure even though that he has had the uh blessing of you know essentially the big guns in the dc universe to uh, be green lantern yeah well that's to be expected i mean he was stepping into some very big shoes and and thrown you know right next to the a-list heroes i think it makes sense that he would be insecure even when those even when Superman comes to you and says, you are Green Lantern now, mm. you know, I think it still makes sense that he would have some confidence issues. Oh, yeah. Well, and he's he's proved himself a lot in the comics. So I I think what may have thrown him off may have been the fact that this is just uh, a threat that he's completely unaware of. And the, you get a person looking like Thanos coming at you. I know uh, I know uh, Kyle has never seen Darkseid, but Thanos is essentially the Marvel Universe analog of Darkseid. Oh, yeah. So you see this sort of giant, creepy-looking titan before you. That's going to phase you just a bit. Do you, before we uh, Actually, before we go into notes, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, the whole idea of the DC-Marvel crossovers? Sure. Okay. Well, back in the 70s, in fact, uh, let me see if I can pull this up. When was the first... DC Marvel crossover 1976 
That's that's true, and that was uh, a Superman versus the Mating Spider mm-hmm. uh, Superman versus the Mating Spider-Man number one, with uh, Doc Octopus and Lex Luthor as the uh, villains, and that's been covered in myriad places. I know, uh, I think Charlie Niemeyer covered that over at uh, Superman in the Bronze Age. Yes, and that is just a fun, fun book. Uh, and they did a during the seventies and the early eighties did a couple crossovers. They did Batman, Incredible Hulk. They did the Uncanny X Men and New Titans, and then they did uh, Superman with the Masters of the Universe. And then after that, it pretty much and there was a second Superman Spider Man crossover too. With yeah, that's true. They did Doctor Doom and the Parasite. Mm-hmm. So, and originally during that time when Stan Lee and I guess it was Jim Shooter at the time who were the main editors of the book, there was a, there was a friendly, there was a friendly rivalry between the two. There would be crossover events, but it would be sort of, I don't know. It'd be sort of a parallel universe type stuff, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't the way we see it now where it's kind of bitter rivalry. But after 82, pretty much the crossovers stopped there was really no Marvel and DC crossovers. I mean, you'd occasionally see Batman, Judge Dredd, and you'd see a lot of crossovers with the uh, Dark Horse comics. You'd see aliens come into the uh, Batman universe and the Predator come into Batman universe. But up until uh, 1994, when we got uh, Batman and Predator, or not Batman and Predator, but Batman and Punisher, we really didn't see any of these crossovers. And this was uh, sort of the beginning of the new age of crossovers, which led to the Amalgam universe, which I thought was a really neat concept. Yes. Which took uh, the characters of Bo- – which started out initially with Marvel versus DC, which was uh, a series that pitted, of course, Marvel characters versus DC characters. And I think in a couple of them, they actually had uh, like write-in or call-in uh, issues or write in, people could write in and call in to say yeah there were there were actually five of them mm-hmm. that um, in the months leading up to the miniseries there were little um, cards stuck in all the books that had a phone number on it and you could call in and vote on those five there was Superman um, Superman Hulk was it yeah I think it was Superman okay, yeah Superman Hulk Batman Captain America Superboy Spider Man Wonder Woman and Storm, and Lobo versus Wolverine. Mm-hmm. And those were those were the pretty much the big name characters, and of course Lobo and Wolverine. It's the '90s; you had to. Have oh yeah. Them. But uh, from what I recall, I think Marvel won like three out of the five of the uh, the things because unfortunately at the time Marvel was the big comic book company at the time. Yeah. But. Uh, that eventually led to a sort of shared universe called the Amalgam universe, where you had characters like, uh, again, harking back to Lobo, Lobo the Duck. You had uh, Dark Claw, which is a um, Batman Wolverine crossover. You had Spider Boy, which was Spider Man and Superboy. You had JLX, which was the JLA crossover with the X Men. Uh, Super Soldier, which was Captain America and Superman, and Bruce Wayne, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., which was Batman and Nick Fury. So this was a really neat beginning to a time where DC and Marvel could actually work together and uh, come up with some interesting ideas for comics. Now, I think all of these were pretty much one-shots. 
Yeah. But uh, from what I remember picking a lot of them up, they were pretty fun one shots. And it, it was nice at the time to see the the two big comic book companies willing to do these crossovers and do them within a continuity that would, you know, wouldn't uh, mess with a certain continuity of one character or the other and would just uh, make a kind of fun story. And from what I gather, some of these were written by uh, pretty big name characters. I think, uh, oh, what's his name? Keith Giffen wrote some of the stuff. I can't remember who. Mark Wade wrote several of them. Yeah. I know he wrote the Super Soldier the two super soldier books i think he wrote the jlx book um and i'm blanking on who wrote the rest but yeah there were some pretty big names attached but yeah there was a there was a ton of good creators and a ton of good artists from this and it saddens me now that we've kind of gotten away from that because after this it went away again until jla versus avengers which i've i've heard mixed things about i heard the fact that it's sort of set in you know, limbo for so long, the story set in limbo because they had planned on doing it like almost right after crisis on infinite earths doing this JLA Avengers storyline. And it set so long that it just, when it did come out, it was just met with, you know, kind of a whimper rather than the bang as it was expected. But, uh, I, I like the fact that we're seeing here kind of, uh, the reinvigoration of the whole idea of a crossover event between Marvel and DC. And it's unfortunate now that I don't think anything like anything like this would really ever occur again. Yeah. I mean, I can understand why they would not want to do it all the time because people get burnt out on it and it loses its um, specialness. But, you know, JLA Avengers happened in 2003. So we've not had anything since then. And, they're, they're just leaving money on the table as far as I'm concerned because it, this is, what, 2013? Mm-hmm. So that's been a decade, and there's a, there's a whole new batch of creators that are uh, big names in the industry now and, and would have all kinds of ideas that weren't around back in the mid-'90s when there was the glut of crossovers. Mm-hmm. So, Well, and also with the, uh, with the two initiatives that uh... – Marvel and DC are doing with Marvel now and the new 52, you've got essentially new universes that they could take storylines from. There's not that whole, I hate to say it with the new 52, there's not the whole back history that uh, existed prior to the, the reboot. That's a good point. So you could honestly do stories, you know, prior to the whole five year timeline of new 52 dealing with crossovers with this and it wouldn't affect continuity in the new continuity in any way at all. So it would be interesting to see if uh, uh, Marvel and DC would be willing to take the, uh, take the plunge and see about doing some crossovers with this, you know, cause it would, might be interesting to see a fantastic four Superman meetup or, mm-hmm. or something like that. Uh, it, I'd like to see some, some camaraderie rather than competition between. Yes. I, I think it would be good for the entire industry. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's, that's what the industry needs. I think, you know, competition is good, but this sort of snarky, mean-spirited competition doesn't help either of them. No. I mean, there's a certain amount of, um, you know, trash talk that, that I think is acceptable, you know, because it's all in good fun. But at, at a certain point, it just, it, it like you said, it becomes mean-spirited and, and doesn't help anything. Well, I, I think back in the 70s when Stan was uh, one of the editors at uh, Marvel, he always used to refer to DC as the distinguished competition. Yeah. It was never 
it, it was never mean spirited, but it was always, you know, just like, hey, these are the other guys, you know, here's what we're doing. There's what they're doing. We're better than them. Yeah. <clears throat> so he he did it without, you know, having to take the other person down. You know, he did it more with promoting his own stuff. So if we could get back to that, that would be well, that'd be nicer. In my but uh, if if you want to, I guess now we can go ahead and uh, cover the book. Sure. All right. Uh, taking a look at the cover, it's a really dynamic cover. And I think what helps is the coloring, the the new sort of 90s digital coloring really gives a lot of it gives a lot of depth and a lot of uh, different look to it, uh, especially the way things are shaded, the the oranges and the yellows of the star exploding, just a really dynamic cover. The only thing that I would have to say about it would be the the perspective of it. I mean, Daryl Banks and Terry Austin are two great artists, but uh, if you look at Kyle's right hand on there, his fist looks, even though it's way in the foreground, his fist looks way too big. Yeah. You know, unless that is a construct that he has around his fist, but yeah. No, I think that's supposed to be his actual fist. Yeah, that is a bit bigger than I would think that it should be, but uh, the the characters look good and uh, cover is pretty nice. Don't have a problem with that. Yeah. Moving on to page one, I like the sort of cinematic zoom in as we've got a, a really wide shot of the devastation that the cyborg has done, and then it kind of slowly zooms in to the back of the cyborg, and it's an it's also kind of disturbing that the cyborg. You can't tell from this. You don't know initially that it's a cyborg here. But as it's zooming in, you see the red cape and the sort of cloaked figure. And you also see the long hair. So you're wondering, is this Superman? Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, because at the time, you know, this was the long-haired Superman. So you're wondering if Superman is surveying, you know, a dead planet or what's going on. So, Is this the first time that Cyborg was treated as a Green Lantern villain? I don't know. I don't know if it... Uh, Stems well, forth from the whole uh, thing of issue 46 where – because it wasn't Cyborg that uh, – or was it Cyborg that he fought in issue 46? No, yeah. it's Mongol. No, he fought Mongol in – Oh, well, well, yeah, but – yeah, okay. Yeah, but Cyborg was part of that. So, yeah, this might be the first time that um, Green Lantern or at least Hal Jordan is going after Cyborg mm-hmm. because Mongol is the one that pretty much you know he took out in issue 46. Yeah. And now that I think about it, it would have almost had to have been because after the death of Superman, the cyborg was off the table for a little bit. He resurfaced in the Superman Doomsday Hunter Prey miniseries, and then he was off the table again because Darkseid had him held captive in like this little uh, round metal ball type of deal, had his consciousness captive in that. And uh, there was a comic out just a few months before this where Darkseid released him. So it yeah, would so, almost had to have been. So this may have been this may have been the uh, first realization between Hal Jordan and Cyborg. Well, not really the first fight, but the first, you know, one of the first meetings between Hal Jordan and uh, the Cyborg Superman. Mm-hmm. And he's not really considered to be the Cyborg Superman anymore. He's just Cyborg. So yeah, my part. Uh, let's see. Page two, we get a. Uh, we get a nice splash page of the Silver Surfer blasting away at Cyborg. And the only thing is, uh, I can't tell whether this is just 
supposed to be parts of the cyborg's you know body or whether they're still going with the 90s aesthetic of pouches all over him because it looks like uh, if you're checking out the image on here he's got these things on his legs that could be cybernetic implants or they just could be the sort of Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld type pouches that everyone has going around in the 90s. Cybernetic pouches. And that could be it. I wouldn't be surprised if if that wasn't a thing. And I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> if Rob Liefeld didn't come up with it, if he's not coming up with it right now. <laughs> uh, when you're a superhero, though, it's always a good idea when you come across a strange being to just start randomly firing energy blasts because of course. that always works out well. <laughs> it always, it always inures yourself to the character. You know, yeah. the first thing you should do whenever meeting someone that you don't know, firing it, firing an incredibly powerful ray of energy at them. Always mm-hmm. good to do. Um, moving on to page three, this is where the coloring really stands out. I mean, these are some colors that I have not seen in books up until this point in the nineties, especially the shading on the silver surfer here, how he's got a sort of bluish tint to him. It's uh, really nice. And of course we get the dialogue here where the two introduce themselves as I'm called the silver surfer and cyborg says, call me cyborg. So it's, it's, it's a nice look. And yes, it's, it's a way that, you know, if people have just picked this one book up because maybe they're a fan of the silver surfer and they don't read green lantern or vice versa, that they're able to get the character's, you know, backstory in in a short amount of time. Yeah. Yeah, it's great that the heroes and villains alike are so polite as to introduce themselves before they start their <laughs> fighting McFightenstein. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that I think that's just stereotypically a trope of superhero oh, yeah. comics, you know, but you'll never see anyone in a barroom brawl like, I am Sean Engel, and I have come here, I have been here from since the day of whatever and yeah that never happens my name is indigo montoya you (laughs) killed my father prepare to die (laughs) see but that works that's that's just epically works but uh um cyborg says something here though that kind of it it was interesting he says so this universe is this universe as well is populated by self-proclaimed heroes so what led him to believe he was in another universe I mean, if you were just grabbed and thrown somewhere and, and found yourself in a strange place, why would your mind automatically go to alternate universe opposed to another part of your universe or, or even time travel? Yeah, I guess I guess that does a scratch credulity a little bit. I mean, the fact that perhaps since he has cybernetic memory or whatever, or his, uh, his and pouches, yeah, and pads and pouches. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe his cybernetic pouches have some sort of memory card which uh, tells him that you know he's been transferred to an alternate universe. Yeah, it could be. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll give him that. But yeah, that does kind of sound wonky. I mean, yes, the Silver Surfer is a character that he's never encountered, but the universe is pretty big. You may not encounter every hero ever in the universe. Simply, you know, dead. so it's it's kind of silly to think that you would think that you were somewhere else but you know it works i guess in the in the story so there you go and maybe there's just no shiny naked guys in the dc universe maybe they have a stricter dress code policy Uh, or something i don't know i hate to say it i was reading uh, an episode of or i was reading an issue of green lantern and it was a crossover with the the titans and some other book and i guess they had a character who was uh 
essentially the Silver Surfer, except he was just a much beefier guy. I mean, his look was essentially the same. Mm. So, yeah, and he was drawn by uh, Ron Lim, who was the uh, artist for Silver Surfer, so it made a made sense for the character to be there. So, But, yeah, the cyborg Superman didn't see him, so maybe he just didn't know about the uh, shiny naked guy in uh, the DC universe. And he's better off for it, probably. Probably. Uh, let's see. I like the way on panel or on page four um, that both uh, Green Lantern and the Silver Surfer are reluctant heroes um, who also have, you know, immense cosmic power. And the way I kind of look the heroes and it's nice that they it's nice this team up because I think they're similar characters in a way. But the way I kind of look at them, look at them at is a kind of Spock and Kirk character with the silver surfer being more of a Spock type character, very logical, very in some ways kind of naive to the way things are going on. And Kyle being sort of a Kirk character, kind of brash and outgoing, but it's, it's a nice pairing of the two similar characters who have two distinct and opposite personalities. Hmm. Maybe that's just me reading too much. Maybe it's, just the fact that I've spent a lot of time watching Star Trek. Who knows? (laughs) No, I can see that. Moving on to page five, I I like this bit of continuity here. Uh, Kyle's using, you know, Kyle here is drawing a, uh, basically a new design for Radu's coffee house. And uh, for those of you who don't know about it, Radu is his landlord who has a little coffee shop at the uh, bottom of this apartment that he has. And uh, Radu is a sort of a reoccurring character in the Green Lantern book. So I like the fact that we get a bit of continuity in the book uh, and uh, a mention of characters who were in the Green Lantern book. That's, I thought that was kind of nice. Yeah. As someone who majored in graphic design, though, I got to say that's kind of a terrible logo. Uh, hopefully but, it'll get better. Well, Yeah, maybe it's a rough draft. I don't yeah. know. Let's, let's hope so. But I also got a comment on the same page. Kyle is really not very bright for just leaving uh, the uh, power battery to the ultimate ultimate weapon in the uh, DC universe, <laughs> standing on top of one of his file cabinets. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, uh, maybe this is just Kyle, you know, being sort of well, not cocky, but not not really taking care of his stuff because you've got a Green Lantern, you've got a Green Lantern battery hanging around by an open window. I mean, yeah, maybe he's on the third or fourth floor and people can't see in, but yeah, you don't want to have that out. But maybe that's just me. Although if someone saw... Are you thinking about the secret ident- identity issue? or? Yeah, I, I'm thinking, you know, mm-hmm. because cause that's also been another thing in the story. Uh, he's also got this huge Green Lantern ring that he wears around all the time. In fact, in the issue... Actually, in last issue that I covered, uh, episode 70, where I covered issue number 70, obviously, uh, Kyle was sketching a person in his apartment and he had the green lantern ring on his finger and that green lantern ring was huge (laughs) and i can't imagine that the girl wouldn't have been able to see it as he was sketching her so Hmm. yeah he's just kind of being kind of lax with his uh green lantern persona maybe it cloaks itself somehow Uh, i'll give you a no prize that maybe you know it's invisible i don't know yeah it's invisible to the uh the people in the book but visible to the readers yeah. Uh, by that. It's a stretch, but uh, 
you, you take what you can. Um, moving on to page six, I don't really have that many notes for this page, but the one panel, that third panel there where Kyle is flying, the artwork just a little looks just a little off. He looks yeah. funky in that. The artwork several places through the book seems very rushed. Yeah. Like they just didn't take the time they needed to. to mm-hmm. uh, I, don't know, I don't know if that was a deadline issue. Was Daryl Banks... I should be paying more attention. What was he doing at this point? Uh, at this point in time, he was off the Green Lantern book for a while. Paul Pelletier had come in to do a few uh, issues drawing the uh, Green Lantern book. So maybe this was the time uh, that uh, Banks was drawing this during the time that Pelletier was on the uh, Green Lantern books proper. So hmm. could be. I could. I. Uh, it would make sense to me that. Uh, I do want to thank Kyle though for taking the time to self-monologue about who he is and and uh, how he has the ultimate weapon in the universe mm-hmm. while, while he's charging up. Well, and again, it harkens back to the idea that people who may not be familiar with these characters need a little bit of backstory. So it helps in making sure that people who just pick this off up off the rack, you know, have an idea of who this is and what's going on. So it's you got to you got to take it with the book, I guess. Yeah. Moving to the next page, we've got Terax, and unfortunately, I don't know pretty much anything about this person. It looks like Me either. You know, it looks like he's uh, he's got his skin pretty much sandblasted, though. It's a bunch of yeah. You know. His name is Terax, and he carries an axe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as as one would expect. So, uh, not much to say about that page. Uh. He would make a cool action figure. I'll I give think him that. so. Yeah, the, the giant axe thing, I think that would work really well as an action figure. Moving moving on to page eight, the only thing I've got to say here is that this kind of harkens back to the idea of Kyle being a big anime lover. Uh, in that second panel on page eight, it looks like Kyle is doing one of those Street, fight, street Fighter Hadouken things. It looks like he's yes. going to be doing one of those Ryu fireball things. Yeah. So I... Uh, it's an interesting panel. It's an interesting sort of energy blast that he's going to fire at someone. But, you know, it's just kind of atypical of the way I see Green Lantern fighting. But it works with Kyle simply because of his, I think, his anime styling and his anime, you know, his, his like of the sort of Japanese anime style. <laughs> and then, of course, you get the fact that Terax is probably... Uh, related to uh, Geoforce here because he's able to manipulate uh, the Earth to smack Kyle in the face. So. <laughs> Moving on, I don't have any notes until uh, page 10. I'm any... actually noteless until 12. And okay. that's, my note over on 12 is kind of a general comment about the story to that point. So. Okay. Well, uh, on page 10, I've got uh, the fact that we that uh, we get to introduce an spawn into the uh, <laughs> oh wait no I'm sorry that's parallax I thought the cave the, and everything the Irish spawn yes the Irish spawn <laughs> oh I would love to see that character but yeah yeah Hal's cape tends to uh, shrink and grow during the uh, course of this comic to yeah. uh, basically fit the dramatic needs of it but yeah this is a very spawn like cape here so eh. what do you think of parallax's costume? You know, I mean, the, the varying cape sizes aside, the varying cape size, you know, when it is just the simple cape 
and the shoulder pads when it's when it was initially drawn in issue 50 of Green Lantern the the pinup page that Banks and Tangall did I actually kind of liked it yes it had the big shoulder pads but it was a nice armored look um it differentiates him from Green Lantern or Howell's actual original Green Lantern uniform enough that you can tell that it's a different character. So, uh, aside from the cape being the various wildly different links, I actually enjoy the parallax costume. What about yourself? You know, at one point, I might have thought it was okay, and I don't hate it now, but it just seems very... It, it just seems like it's too much. I don't know. There's the big shoulder pads and the armor and all these little, like, lines and things. I, I don't know. It's very it's very of its time, I guess. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's what it's going through. I think the thing is, it is very much of the 90s. And when you try and bring that aesthetic into the modern day, because they brought the character of Parallax back again, and to do the same sort of costume, it does... It is of its time, so it doesn't really work any time other than the 90s. So I think for the 90s aesthetic, I think it looks good. But yeah, I could agree with you that you know coming forward here into the 2000s, now the 2010s, you know it does look kind of dated. Yeah. Oh my God. It's for page 11. Maybe since Kyle realizes that uh, this villain Terax, who oddly enough can move Earth era yeah who would have figured that maybe he'd have a better uh better luck with him if he had spent more time with the uh, titans training with uh, the actual terra so that you know he'd know how to combat people who manipulated the earth but you know but wasn't terra dead at this point or, or evil or something no it's zero hour you know she oh. was she was a member of the of the uh, all new titans i guess or whatever so they brought her back yeah, yeah, she brought they brought Terra back and she was a oh. part of the Titans and Kyle was a member of the Titans and uh who was it? Uh, Speedy or Roy Harper was Arsenal and he had a very a very 90s very pouch-ridden costume and I remember that costume. Yeah, and uh, Impulse was on the team and it was uh, and Damage. Oh, if you remember Damage. I do. Uh, well, I, I pity you then, sir. But yeah. Uh, oh come on! Of of the '90s characters, he's far. Okay. From the worst. Yeah, he he's he's no Nightblade. I'll give you. That. <laughs> okay, but um, yeah, and then of course I had to mention this because it's very stereotypical. On this panel, on page eleven, on panel five, what happens to Green Lantern? Oh, he gets he, hit in the head. Gets hit in the head. Yeah, that's something that has never happened before in Green Lantern comics. I find that completely unique that green lantern gets hit in the head by something well the in the golden age batman was always getting hit in the head or, or knocked unconscious and he turned out okay so oh, that's true um moving on to page 12 yep the appearance of dark side would make me wet my pants oh wait this isn't dark side yeah it, 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 i i do like uh i do like thanos's nice uh it's oh, what's the chair that Metron used? The Mobius chair. The Mobius chair. It is almost a Mobius chair here. It's a nice little floaty chair thing. Mm-hmm. I like it. Yeah, I don't really know too much about Thanos because I, he's a Marvel character, and I, like I said, I'm not 
too versed in the Marvel stuff, but I I I remember reading the Infinity Gauntlet. I didn't read the Infinity War, War, but it's been so long since I read that. But I do know that the character of Thanos, and I've heard this described. Essentially, Thanos has the desire. His his main desire is to, of course, take over the entire world. He is a lot like Darkseid in that he's looking to destroy all life in the world to uh, so that he can be with Lady Death, who's like, you know, essentially the Marvel version of Death. Yeah. And uh, in the Infinity Gauntlet, that was kind of, he had gained this uh, grand power of this glove that had like these five gems on it, which gave him immense power, and it took the entire Marvel Universe to take him down. But I think the one thing about Thanos is that he he doesn't really want to be a world conqueror. And supposedly in every scheme that he has, he has something built into it, which will allow him to fail that he intentionally puts that in there. I don't know whether subconsciously or not, but I remember reading something about the character. And that was one of the things that, that the character was known for was intentionally putting something in there that would cause the heroes to be able to defeat him in some way. So (laughs) I know it sounds always awful. a good plan. Well, it's something that I think he doesn't put in there, you know, consciously. It's something that just happens to be a part of his plan. But uh, like, okay, yeah. yeah. Let's see. Um, just an overall comment about the book so far. I thought that Mars did a really good job, and really he continues it through the rest of the book. But I thought he did a good job of introducing the characters and and setting up the parallel storylines and keeping things moving. When you really break it down, this is a pretty simple story, but there's a lot of moving parts here and, and characters with complicated backstories that he had to kind of introduce. And we're only a quarter of the way into the book, and it's it's been pretty pretty smooth ride so far. Oh yeah, having introduced so many characters. Yeah, the the fact that uh, if you don't know if you are a DC or if you are specifically just a Marvel fan he's been able to introduce the characters well enough that you get a pretty good idea of who they are and what their motivations are. So a, right. a kudos to Mars for uh, his writing in the book. It really works well. Moving on to page 13. Hey, you know, I've never heard Hal Jordan tell anyone he was parallax. Have you ever heard that? Is that new I, in comics? It was brand new to me when I read this book, man. I'm amazed. Uh, I've never heard that Hal Jordan has told anyone that he's parallax. But there's very little I can't do, though now I've taken the name Parallax. <laughs> yeah, that's surprising. Hal, Hal's uh, usually pretty uh, pretty secretive about this kind of stuff. But... He should just get like a name tag. Hello, <laughs> my name is Parallax. I think he should do like the uh, the World's Fair Superman thing, and above his <laughs> above his uh, on his chest, chest and yeah. have, the, have the name Parallax. That'd be awesome. Uh, get rid of the circle there on his chest and just make it a giant P. The word parallax above it. Let's see. Um, the only thing I have on the name, well, I've got a couple of things on page fourteen. Uh, the fact that the cyborg could just disappear in the uh, course of two panels was kind of kind of convenient, I guess. Uh, yeah. The whole idea of the cyborg getting away, but you know, they did sort of the same thing with Terax and the. Uh, later in the issue but yeah Hal Jordan's looking for or Parallax is looking for Cyborg all across the universe and suddenly you know just snap he's gone and uh he's been he's been learning from Batman that's true 
Um, and then the only other thing is I feel uncomfortably weird with the, uh, the final panel on this page of Hal Jordan's <laughs> mighty, mighty chin appearing in the uh, pectoral muscles of the Silver Surfer. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's far from the most uncomfortable portion of the book but oh i yeah i guess he could be appearing in other <laughs> so yeah uh, uh, if, if only ed benes had drawn the book <laughs> yeah the silver i don't <laughs> see the face of hal jordan and the silver surfer's buttocks oh. <laughs> i really like what mars did here in bringing these two characters together i mean on the surface they do have that thing in common and that they're trying to right past wrongs and i think how as parallax as he was originally presented he really was trying to do what he thought was right mm-hmm. he, he might not have been doing the right thing or, or going about it the right way and and i think he even realized it at, at times but he did you know what he did as he says here i did some questionable things but for good reasons all i've ever wanted was to make everything right again and as the book points out there's a real surface similarity there between the two and i and i like that mars was able to play with that without being um well without making hal into a good guy yeah well and they if you're if you're actually thinking about it the connections between the two characters could be tenuous but mars does a good job could does a good job of drawing the parallels between them and uh making it work within the continuity or within the context of the story so yeah i agree with you there um, moving on to page 16, uh, I like that, uh, I like the very Bruce Lee or, st- I guess it's Bruce Lee or the stereotypical Japanese thing of Thanos catching the blade of Terax between his hands. That's always kind of a neat, mm-hmm. neat thing. And then of course, Thanos basically zaps the living crap out of him. And, and throughout the, the, throughout the entire thing, Kyle is not... I, I like that Kyle is not trusting of Thanos. Uh, he kind of gets the idea that he may not be. Uh, well, of course, you look at him. You look at Thanos. You've got to think that uh, this isn't a Superman type. He doesn't have the kind face that Superman has. He doesn't even have the kind face that Batman has. <laughs> so the fact that Kyle is at least a little bit reluctant at first to go along with this plan says something for Kyle, in my opinion. You see, I was going to say the opposite. I, I think Kyle is way too trusting of him. Really? Here here, and over on page 20. And I mean, I guess it could be explained that um, Thanos is just really convincing, and, and once he brought brought up Hal, like Kyle just um, not really forgot about Terax, but you know, Hal is such a big part of the character's story that I can understand that kind of... Um, consuming Kyle's world whenever he, whenever he's brought up. But, you know, in just the space of a couple pages, he's pretty much completely bought into Thanos' story and, and is completely ignoring the fact that Terax was saying, you know, Thanos brought me here, told me to destroy the city, and, you know. Well, yeah, I can give you that. But it, I, I think, I think, again, Kyle is probably... Well, I think the I think the revelation of it being Hal Jordan that uh, Thanos is trying to take out may, in a bit, blind him to the fact that yeah. uh, Thanos might not be completely motivated by by the best of intentions. 
But yeah, I can agree with you some there. I really don't have too many more notes until uh, yeah. page 25-ish. Yeah, um, I can really see a bit more here starting on page uh, 22 where uh, Thanos grabs Kyle's arm and says, I need the ring to do this, that it would make it would give Kyle a good cause to think that he might be being manipulated a bit. Uh, But I really like on page 23, the way it's uh, set up uh, the parallels between the two characters and both of them asking, you know, will you help me? Mm -hmm. And uh, both Kyle and the silver surfer going along with it, you know, sort of reluctantly trusting these two people. Yeah. It's nice image, and I like the way that, uh, again, harkening back to the colors, the colors are really dynamic here. It's uh, The new coloring process really works well, and it's, I don't know how to explain it, the way it's blended, and especially the way the Silver Surfer looks, it's just kind of neat. I'm, I'm really enjoying the heck out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was kind of in the, um, not the dawn of the computer coloring, but the, the, late morning hours of it, I guess, and um, before they got really over the top in doing all the weird effects that made the art look bad, you mm. know. Yeah, here it's just sort of nice. You've got a nice blending of the colors, um, and it it gives a more dynamic, you know, especially with the surfer, it gives a more dynamic sheen to him. So yeah, yeah. I he like actually that. looks like he's shiny and metal. Mm-hmm. So it's... It's a nice work, and you can definitely see that on page 24 as we get the two heroes going, okay, I'll, I'll join you to help with this. And mm-hmm. I like the fact at the the bottom of the captions, the two heroes, are only hope that I'm doing the right thing. So yeah. you can realize that even though they're going along with this plan, it may not be the best, best one. Yeah. Can we jump back just a few pages to the double page splash there, 18 and 19? Yeah. With, with, let's see, we've got Silver Surfer, Kyle, Parallax, Thanos, and even Cyborg and Terax. So that's six characters with pretty complicated backstories, and this is really the closest we get to pausing the story for character identification. Mm-hmm. This double-played splash here that kind of recaps uh, Silver Surfer's origin. Yeah, and uh, I, I neglected to mention that. The, this page is another really good you know working of the coloring and the artwork here oh yeah especially with galactus i don't think galactus has looked this amazing since well since ever because (laughs) i remember galactus in the fantastic four books when he was in his little purple biker shorts type stuff so he looks pretty he looks pretty ominous here and he looks a hell of a lot better than he did in that stupid fantastic four movie haven't seen that one the Rise of the Silver Surfer. Haven't seen it. Be glad. <laughs> oh, it can't be that bad. Uh, it's it's not horrible, but uh, once you find out the Galactus really isn't Galactus, it's kind of disappointing. But, uh, yeah, uh, again, the coloring and the art here in the book really helps sell it. Yeah. Uh, I think I think that's some of the some of the best stuff that would make the that would make this book I, I want to have. I wonder if that's why there's two colorist credits. It could be. We've got digital in the on the back cover. It says International House of Colors, mm-hmm. and then which, uh, I'm, which I'm certain is not as 
cool as International House of Pancakes. Nothing but, is. Um, but then on the uh, second page of the book, they credit Digital Chameleon. Yeah, I'm wondering if that's two different companies or or if there were, you know if it's just a a branch of that one company or what. But yeah, either way, the coloring in the book just really dynamic. You know, and of yes, very 90s, but you expect from the 90s book, and it's it is very. It's vastly greater than what we'd see from, you know, your stereotypical just uh, regular colors coloring. I think the computer enhancement of the, or the computer-generated coloring is really nice looking here. Yeah. Uh, I'm Googling to see if they're the same company or not. Okay. Uh, I'll go ahead and go on. Um, uh, the next note I have is on page 27, and we kind of get as Howell's been imbued by – the surfer's sort of cosmic energy. I like the fact that now he's got the sort of radiating energy that you'd see the silver surfer blasting uh, kind of coming off his uh, costume here as he, you know, cause when I first saw that, I thought, well, he's entering the atmosphere. Is he sort of, you know, burning up from the atmosphere? Is that an effect from that? But then, no, I realized it was the uh, silver surfer's energy here. But uh, on the same page, I also, get in that last panel that we're finally getting to the idea that maybe Hal isn't being as altruistic as he wanted to do as he, yeah. as he wanted to be because he says it's so simple they should have listened to me when I offered them a chance before doesn't matter now though this is only the beginning and this time they can't stop me so you kind of get the idea now that oh maybe it's not completely for altruistic reasons that Hal is doing all this world building yeah Maybe this guy having infinite cosmic power, not such a good idea after all. No, probably not. Uh, then we get another uh, big two-page splash with a bunch of things as uh, Cal gets brought back to Oa, which he blew up real good a while ago. And the fact that the green energy still is there, I don't know how this fits in continuity, but I guess it works for this. I guess it works for this story. But uh, I had a question here. Mm-hmm. Maybe not a question as much as a comment. But so the destruction you're on twenty eight and twenty nine, right? Yeah. Okay. So the destruction of Oa caused a which happened back in Green Lantern. Uh actually I think it happened in the zero issue of Green Lantern because oh, that's okay. where Hal and uh or that's when Hal and Kyle had their sort of final showdown and okay. in order right. to uh stop Hal from getting the power of Oa, Kyle destroyed the planet. Okay, right. But the the destruction of the planet caused a tear in reality, which is what Thanos used to pull the cyborg and parallax to the Marvel Universe, and what he used to send Terax and himself to the DC Universe, right? I guess, yeah. Okay. I like that. I like that explanation. I don't mind in these crossovers when the heroes are just suddenly in the same universe, even though it was never mentioned before and it's never mentioned again. I mean, to me, that's just one of the things about a crossover I'm willing to kind of turn a blind eye to. Mm -hmm. But I really like that they explained it, even more so that they used it, that they explained it using an event from one of the characters' books. Yeah, that's actually kind of nice, because I I agree with you. It doesn't really matter to me that these characters cross over or that it's, you know, I don't need to have the explanation that, oh, the DC universe is this alternate universe and the Marvel universe is this one. I can believe that Superman lives in Metropolis and Spider-Man lives in New York and all Superman has to do is fly to New York and he'll encounter Spider-Man. Right. Done and there. 
But, you know, it's nice that they have an explanation here that does work, like you said, with uh, something that happened in the DC universe. So so it's nice that they go out of their way to explain it, but it wasn't necessary for the book. I mean, it's a nice bonus thing, I guess. And don't get me wrong. Sometimes the fact that they are from different universes and they do explain it, that does work. I mean, in JLA Avengers, that's part of the story, that they are from different universes and the differences between those universes is part of what drives the story, but it, it's not necessary. But I, I did like that they took time to explain it here. That's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to get at. No, yeah, and I, I agree. It would be, I guess, for some people, it'd be sticklers. Like, how can this? You know, how could they have gotten here? How could Thanos be here? He's not a part of this universe. Well, here's your explanation. It's simple, and yeah. it it works in the fact that Oa was destroyed, and the massive energy from Oa did cause a rift between the fabrics of space and time or whatever like that so i think it really works well and uh again credit to mars for coming up with the uh concept of that other than that moving on to page 30 i guess uh when the person that you're supposed to be working with to destroy the villain that he said that he wants you to destroy ask you to stick your hand into a big metal thing and it clamps it in there (laughs) Maybe you should realize that he's not completely – his intentions probably aren't in the best of places. So, mm-hmm. But uh, there's, again, Kyle maybe being a bit too trusting. Well, he does say maybe I should reconsider. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, he says it right after you know his hand is locked in the big metal yes. grippy thing. So, uh, Then the next page, of course, we get uh, – Hal's feeling of Hal's channeling of Obi-Wan Kenobi and yeah some more uh, uh at the bottom panel we get more uh varying cape language <laughs> as well and I guess I guess maybe if the the silver surfer is accelerating at a light speed maybe that's just the stretching of Hal's cape due to uh you know the acceleration but yeah Hal's cape gets longer again yeah I think it just grows and shrinks as needed on the next page, I like the reveal of Thanos's uh, plan, and this does kind of tie into Thanos's entire modus operandi in the DC universe. He wants to destroy all life because he wanted to be with the love of his life, Lady Death, and she had neglected him or she had uh, shunned him because of whatever reason. So I like this this couple of panels here on this page that explains why Thanos is doing this. Though, again, we have a villain monologuing his entire plan when he could just kill the hero and go on with it. Uh, you know it's a comic book, Michael. You know, I know. It's, what, I know. it's what they do, and you know you just have to let it go. It's going to happen. Vill- villains are always going to monologue. I don't think, you know, uh, you're not going to have a time where Superman is just going to take Lex Luthor and throw him in the sun. You're not going to have a time where Batman is just going to snap the neck of the Joker. It's, it's not going to happen, sadly. Yeah, and if they did, they would still take six issues to tell it. So. <laughs> sadly, it would. <laughs> Moving on, you know, here we get, you know, essentially the introduction of Silver Surfer and Parallax to the fight. And, of course, it uh, ends up the typical heroes have to fight before they realize that, oh, we shouldn't be fighting each other. We need to be fighting the people who are basically blowing up the universe here. So page 33, that center panel, that's a really awkward pose. 
Yeah, it does. The artwork looks kind of. It doesn't look as detailed as the rest of the artwork. No. In fact, this entire page looks pretty rushed. The artwork is very sketchy. Mm-hmm. I know it's uh, it's just not as detailed. In fact, that uh, second panel there with uh, Kyle going off against Thanos and then the panel with the surfer and Parallax down in the fourth one, just not really good. Now, Kyle looks okay in that fifth panel, but yeah, this is the best artwork in the book. And in the fourth panel there, Hal is striking a very Spawn-like pose. Again, yeah. Well, yeah, he's got the sort of leaping with his uh, arms spread out, his his legs brought up underneath him. So, yeah. I know I sound like I'm I'm tearing this book apart, but it was a really fun book. I I do enjoy the story. Well, and that's the thing with uh, when you're critiquing him, you always have to find the nitpicky stuff with it. Yeah. I, I agree. I enjoy the book a lot, but yeah, there are some things to criticize in it. But uh, we move to the next page, and we've got again. It's a very dynamic panel of the Silver Surfer and Green Lantern fighting, but it's it is very '90s, especially in the way that they're posed and the sort mm-hmm. of very, I want to say, crouching tiger, hidden dragon type <laughs> leaping feel. But it's, it's a great th- two-page splash, though. I really. Hope this is hanging on someone's wall. Oh, yeah. Point. This is a really nice looking. Th- this would be an excellent poster. And this would be something that I, I think that DC and Marvel could use to promote the idea of good crossovers between the books. Yeah. yeah. And even better, they didn't clutter it up with a bunch of text. There's one narration caption. That's it. Mm-hmm. Oh, Just yeah. Really letting, really letting Banks have his way with the page. Mm-hmm. And and it's, it's, a, it's a really beautiful job. It's a... It's a nice, it's a nice piece of artwork by Banks here. Had Daryl Banks drawn Silver Surfer before this? I do not think so. Um, I know that Ron Lim came in, who who drew Silver Surfer, came in to do an issue of Green Lantern, but I don't think Daryl Banks has done Silver Surfer. I could be wrong, but I don't have like uh, Mike's Amazing World pulled up in front of me. Um, page thirty-six. You know, of course, we get. More monologuing from villains, so it had to happen. And then, of course, the uh, two villains uh, square off. And what is the uh, onomatopoeia that uh, happens on that page? To Doom. Find them? Doom. Exactly. But I loved the meeting here between Thanos and Parallax. I mean, despite the fact that they're both villains, their reasons and motivations are about as far apart as can be. And seeing them calmly realize that was pretty great. Mm Mm-hmm. And there is a there is a lot of intensity in these panels as mm-hmm. as you get the the close ups of both of their eyes and their howls howls are dark and glowing, but uh, Thanos's have the sort of energy coming off of them. So it's it's really nice to see them square off in these on this page. Yes. Moving on throughout the book, there's just a you know the typical fighty McFightenstein between uh, Kyle and the Surfer that you kind of expect. Uh, Cal rings up a sort of chivalric uh, knight on a horseback, which okay. That that seems sort of out of place for Kyle, who's usually ringing up stuff like giant robots or very anime type stuff. This would this seems a bit out of place. However, the uh, knight does have a a really long ponytail, so uh, maybe <laughs> he was just borrowing something from a life field book. Who knows? I don't see pouches on the night. 
Yeah, well, oh. maybe he just didn't have enough time to get the yeah. pouches yeah. on. There are pouches on the horse, I think. So. <laughs> of course there's. Of course, there's pouches on the horse. There you go. Um, but then uh, Thanos blowing up the world that Hal just recreated. Nice image. And again, you know, it's uh, from here on out. I don't really have that many notes. It's just uh, me either. Them fighting. I do like. I do like on page forty the way that uh, Kyle stops the Silver Surfer from his attack at him. He. Uh, Covers in him in a giant surf wave, basically. Yeah. I thought that was kind of clever. You can tell, I think, Ron Mars has an affinity for the Silver Surfer because there's not a lot of surfing jokes and puns no. in the book. No, I think he has I think he has a lot of respect for the character. Respect, that's the word I was looking mm-hmm. for. Not affinity, yeah. Yeah, well I I think he I think he has an affinity for the character. I think he enjoys uh writing the character, but he also I've I've heard in uh, like when Keith Giffen went and uh, did the Defenders issues uh, back I think in the late '90s, early 2000s. Well, no, I think it was in the 2000s, and he had uh, the Hulk, Doctor Strange, and Silver Surfer on the book, and he kind of wrote Silver Surfer as sort of just this clueless, sort of almost borderline mentally challenged character. <laughs> that uh, it's not it's not that the Silver Surfer is. I can see the Silver Surfer being kind of a naive character and very trusting, but I don't see him as unintelligent. And I think that uh, Mars does a good job here of drawing him as, you know, the kind of very trusting, very wanting to accept the good in uh, people character. Yeah. Yeah, I really don't have too many specific notes. I mean, it's a nice panel here on uh, 42 of or maybe that's 41 of uh, Thanos blowing up uh, Coast City, that sort of... It's 41. A 41, that giant energy, sort of uh, sort of energy, yellow energy construct of uh, Thanos blowing up uh, Coast City. And I guess that's also kind of interesting that we've got uh, Hal or Parallax as the sort of green giant energy construct and Thanos as the giant yellow one. So uh, sort of parallels to uh, previous Green Lantern books. Yeah. Or at least, and, it, uh, and at the bottom of that page, it's interesting because um, Hal threatens to kill Thanos, and Thanos is like, "Okay, that's mm-hmm. what I want." You know? Yeah. That, e- either either you kill me or I destroy everything. So either way, right. Thanos wins. That's true. But then we get the uh, heroes finally teaming up and realizing that they have to take the uh, bad guys down. Oops, we have to fix our mistakes. And as is requisite, both of them get to be there get to have their moment in the sun and, and be the hero. Mm-hmm. As, you know, of course, first Kyle absorbs all the energy and then transfers it to the Silver Surfer. So I don't know how I feel about that. I don't know, uh, you know, the Silver Surfer being a, a living battery. I don't know that much about the character, but for the comic, I think it works. But of course, then it leads to the fact that Parallax just, it does leave that nice splash on 45 of uh, the just glowing with energy Silver Surfer saying that, you know, if my death is needed to preserve the universes, then my life was not lived in vain. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really good artwork here, and it's uh, 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 there's so much energy and power in these panels. It's just really, really neat. Again, a testament to Daryl Banks and the coloring. 
But uh, I guess the only real note that I have before the end of the book is the fact that when Kyle rings up someone to help the Silver Surfer back onto his surfboard, <laughs> two girls in bikinis. Right. So that's stereotypical Kyle. I like I like that they're carrying on with that. But then, of course, the the rift opens up in the universes again, which allows the Silver Surfer to go back to his universe. And uh, he takes Thanos with him, but Kyle doesn't take care of Parallax. Parallax just disappears. Yeah, that that actually leads very well into one of my no, my note for this page is that unfortunately neither villain are really dealt with. None of the villains in the story, in fact, are really dealt with. I mean, Cyborg disappears, Terax is shunted away, and here Parallax and Thanos are just kind of thrown back into their respective universes without the heroes really worrying about what happened to them. So it's kind of kind of disappointing because you expect some kind of resolution. Yeah, well, I think this may be the sort of the way they do these sort of uh, parallel or these alternate universe ones or these crossover ones where you're able to take the toys out of the sandbox and play with them. But after you're done, you have to put all the toys back in the sandbox so that nothing really has changed. Yeah, I can understand that. But still, you could, you know. Yeah, you could you could say that, you know, something happened. I don't you know. know. Kyle took Parallax to this and then later on they, t- they could explain that he escaped somehow. Yeah, but yeah, I agree with you. It is kind of it is kind of upsetting that we don't have a resolution or sort of justice for either of the villains or really any of the villains. the the only The only note I have is on the last page, and uh, as Kyle's coming back to his apartment in uh, in New York City, we get uh, a shot of his alleyway and this box in the alleyway with yellow light coming out of it. So. Do you, do you want to make the joke, or may I? Go right ahead. What's in the box? <laughs> I saw you with the box. What was in the box? Oh, what's in the box? What's in the f***ing box? Uh, you know what? With the yellow beams of light coming out of it, it's Sinestro's head. No, see, I, I'm I honestly have to edit in the Price is Right losing horn. <laughs> don't worry, I've got that. Okay. Um, <laughs> see, I don't. I, I actually am kind of puzzled as to what this is. I'm I'm looking at it, and maybe my memory of the Green Lantern books is by uh, is kind of faulty. But I don't know if this is referencing anything or or what. Maybe this has something to do with the beginning of the Amalgam universe. Maybe can this I, has. Can I spoil you? Uh, please do. It leads into the DC Marvel crossover. Okay. Because there were. See if I remember this. I haven't read DC Marvel in a long time. Let me, so let me see if I can remember this correctly. The the point of or the the story in DC Marvel was that it was originally one universe, but then they split, and there was like the the two quote unquote brothers, the red guy and the blue guy, that represented each universe, and then. This box and Access, the character Access, mm-hmm. were like two remaining shards or whatever you want to call it that allowed um, access to the two universes. Okay. Or something like that. I, it, like I said, it's been a while. But yes, this does lead into the DC versus Marvel crossover. Okay, well, that, that explains everything because I was like – 
what the heck is this mean? Because it also the caption box at the beginning of it or at the at the very end of it says end and it has ellipses at it. So it makes you it leads you to believe that this is probably going to have something ongoing. So that completely that explains what what it's going to and it doesn't spoil anything, but it, it explains what it is. So, yeah, now I know I have to go out and pick up some DC and Marvel if I can find it in my LCS. Yeah. OK, I, I looked it up on Wikipedia. It says uh, Axel Asher first became aware of his extraordinary powers when the two cosmic entities called the Brothers, who represented the DC Universe and the Marvel Universe, became aware of each other. Uh, and hurled their respective heroes into conflict with each other to prove, to prove their superiority over their counterpart. Champions were chosen. There was a bunch of fighting. Um, Axel was just a normal teenager living in New York who came across an old bum in an alley who protected what seemed to be a cardboard box, but was actually a portal between the universes. Uh, he also revealed that Axel was next in line to bear the powers and responsibilities of the Access, a person in charge of preventing the universes from merging into one. So interesting. Yeah. Well, that uh, that's a perfect that, that's a perfect tie-in to what's going to be happening, I guess, here in a few months with the whole amalgam thing. So, and the obviously the DC versus Marvel thing. So mm-hmm. that that's really interesting. I I knew that this had some relationship to all of that, but I didn't know it was it was exactly that. So that's really cool. Yeah. So it's kind of I don't know if you really call it a prologue, but. There is a there is a definite seed planted there for the next big thing. Well, that's cool. It's interesting that Mars got to got to do this, and I was wondering if I've got to assume that this was all pretty much set up, you know, prior to this. So, mm-hmm. well, he was one of the writers on DC versus Marvel. Well, it makes sense then. Him and him and uh, Peter David. Okay, cool. Well, holy cow! Well, I have to go pick out that stuff up. That's <laughs> Peter David. You can't go wrong with that. But yeah, I enjoyed this, and I this would have been something I probably wouldn't have gotten to, you know, for quite a while until uh, you sort of turned me on to it, Michael. So I really appreciate you getting getting me into this. This was like I'm glad we said, got to cover it. Yeah, like you said, it's a it's a simple story of you know just the the villains and the heroes meeting up and fighting, but it it looks like it's leading into something a lot bigger and uh, great artwork. You know, for the most part, there were. A, a few minor problems with it, but really good artwork, really dynamic coloring, and just overall a good story. I, I really enjoyed doing this. Yeah, and probably for people at the time, it was probably good to see, for some people anyway, probably good to see Daryl Banks back drawing Green Lantern again. Mm-hmm. Or, or Kyle Rayner, you know, since he started out right around the time Kyle debuted. And Oh, yeah. Well, and to to be honest, Paul Pelletier has done has done a good job so far with Green Lantern. But I think Daryl Banks sort of gave him that original costume and gave him that original feel. So it's nice to have yeah. him back on the character. But uh, Michael, I am I'm really glad that you were able to come on here and talk about this comic. Um, I know you're kind of busy with work, but do you want to plug some places on the internet where people can find you? Oh, sure. Um... Well, like you said at the top of the show, I host The Thrilling Adventures of Superman. I haven't actually had any episodes out since the Christmas episode, which was a couple days ago. But um, you can find all the back episodes at uh, greatcrypton.com. And uh, there's also Green Lantern's Light, which we've actually decided to go on hiatus with that for right now until 
we can all get our I mean it, it was mostly me I'll put it out there it was, it was mostly me and my schedule but um, both Jeffrey and David are busy as well so we've kind of put that show on hiatus but again you can find all the back episodes of that at greenlanternslight.com and then I have my um, my blog Siegel and Schuster Mythmakers where I talk all about Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and all the wonderful things they gave us uh, besides Superman so and you can find that at greatcrypton.com slash Schuster. Awesome. Well, Michael, uh, it's been a thrill to have you on. I really Thanks appreciate you uh, coming in to do this book. And this was, like I said, this was something that I hadn't really expected to cover, and I'm really glad that I did. So yeah. thanks again for and, doing it. And we made it through the entire episode without a single Nickelback joke. Uh, you know that I'm going to have to underscore this with Nickelback now. Probably. No. I'm trying to think of a song that won't cause me pain and having to listen to in the editing process, and I really can't right now. If it's a Nickelback song, there is no such thing. Uh, true. But uh, thanks, everyone, for listening, even if you are having to listen to Nickelback right now. And we will catch you next time on another episode of Just One of the Guys. Till then, have a good week. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. Hosted by yours truly, Sean Eagle. All images, stories, and music are copyrighted their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the tendencies of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to know it. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcome, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at the brand new Two True Freaks website, located at twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scans of the covers and whatever else I feel like putting in. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys podcast or search for Two True Freaks, the new world two. And you can subscribe to either the show or Two True Freaks there. You can also search me on Facebook. And now you can actually find me there. As it was a requirement of my new DeMontecourt contract. But it still doesn't mean that I'll be joining your little Mafia Awards group anytime soon. Thanks for downloading and listening. And come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys. A green I have seen the the official theatrical trailers that they released, but that's really all I've seen. Mm-hmm. I've been avoiding any other clips, and I haven't been watching all the the preview stuff they put out there because. I kind of had the impression I wasn't going to enjoy this movie as much as, say, the other ones, uh-huh. like the Christopher Reeve movies. So I thought my best chance of enjoying it was to kind of limit my exposure to it before I saw it, if that makes any sense. No, it does. And just be totally surprised by, at, at everything I see. So I've kind of been uh, avoiding a lot of that stuff, but... I think at first they were trying to do the same thing with uh, – I can't think of the actor's name. The guy playing Zod in the movie. Oh, um, they were, 
Uh, it's Michael. Michael Shannon. Yeah, Michael yeah. Shannon, yeah. I think they were trying to keep that kind of quiet that he was playing Zod, and then it just got to a point where they couldn't anymore. And, and with all the marketing stuff, now they have to, t- you know. Yeah. Well, when you've got, but... you've got yeah, Zod toys at your local Target or Walmart, yeah, you've got to yeah. kind of figure, oh, yeah, that's who he is. Birthright is, is really good as a standalone kind of a feature film presentation in a comic. Mm-hmm. The first – just reading as the comics, the first half or so was kind of slow, but it all works together really well, and it, it, it is a really good series, mm-hmm. which has now been completely disavowed. But. Yeah, well, that's that's DC. Uh, I have my complaints with the new 52. Uh, there there are some good things about it, but I, I think – and Andy Layton, I think, hit on this best, is it's not the it's not the lack of continuity. It's a lack of history that there's yeah. – that there's not the history of these characters going back, you know, however many, you know, 70 plus years. So. And the, the ironic thing about Birthright is when they first published it, it was not published to be the new origin of Superman. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until the first several issued, issues had come out and it was selling really well that they decided to, hey, let's make this the new origin of Superman. Yeah. You know, and then they did. And then a couple years later, it's retconned away. <laughs> 